You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay uh, through this? Um, well, um, that, thank you. Um, well, it's a bittersweet day. We're, we're saying goodbye uh, to the Schneiders, but we're also sending them off. Uh, to be missionaries. That, that's been a prayer um, that I've had for the Advent, is that uh, while I'm your rector, that we would see people from our congregation go out. Um, there are plenty of reasons to not go out, culturally speaking. Um, uh, even in the midst of our congregation, I'm always amazed uh, by people who are committed believers who uh, have said to their children, uh, just don't go into the ministry. Um, because of what that means, uh, whether it's because the world's going to hate you or whether uh, socially or economically you're going to be uh, hindered. Um, I had, uh, when I was talking to one young man who wanted to go off to seminary, uh, his parents said, we just imagined a better life for you. Um, so uh, it's been my prayer uh, that God would indeed raise up laborers for the vineyard. And uh, Matt and Holly are testimony to that. Uh, You may say, well, but he's already ordained, they're already a family in ministry, but I hope that you understand just how significant it is that they're going to Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about why that is, uh, but he's uh, and his family are leaving behind um, a home, uh, a great uh, deal of comfort uh, in order to go into the vineyard. So let's pray for our time together, and then uh, hopefully Matt and Holly Uh, who's just walked in, will do most of the talking. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would visit us and speak to us by your spirit. And Lord, that uh, you would all open, that you would open all of our eyes uh, to behold your work in this place and give us the courage to join you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, Matt, so you you grew up in San Francisco, uh, served in South Carolina, uh, lived in D.C. That's where you and Holly first were married, uh, went to Yale, uh, then of as I said, South Carolina, but you moved to Birmingham. So tell us, uh, because as you mentioned in the sermon, Birmingham's kind of become home for you. Uh, how so? Uh, in our married life, this is the place we've lived together the longest. Um, six and a half years. We've been married 12, 12 and a half years. Um, so half of our marriage. Um, two of our kids were born here. This is actually the church that I've been a part of the longest. Um, as I said, if you, if you were at the 9 o'clock, 9.15, if you weren't, you'll hear it at 11.15. Um, I've, I've actually spent about a little less than half of my Christian life here. So before coming here, any church that I was a part of, it was one, two, three years, you know, because um, I quickly went into ministry and hopped around because of training and whatnot. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the Advent's become sort of a home church. Birmingham's become a bit of a second home. We really like it here. Um, it took us uh, 11 months to make the decision we made because it wasn't an easy one. Actually, my in-laws live here. My mother-in-law's here. This morning, my parents moved here. Um, so that was an added layer of like complication you know um and and my dad loves it here he's not moving um (laughs) i think he has a girlfriend um i need to ask him uh some woman he's been hanging out with up in coleman um which is can y'all hear this in the back which is huge for him let me see if i can turn you up a little bit matt you might have to project a little bit so anyway you know we we just we've done a lot of life here and um, not only family but some friends have moved here holly's best friend um so we've helped birmingham grow through migration <laughs> yeah you were overwhelmed <laughs> by women children. until you came here yeah, yeah. I had two kids uh we came here with two girls then we had two boys so, so um oh there you, there you are i think of you and you show up thank you just need a little help with volume thanks gil um, and, you know, what, you may not know this, but one of the reasons why I hired Matt is because he won the New Yorker cartoon caption contest 
Uh, that's true. It's absolutely true. Matt, tell us what the what the cartoon was and and your winning caption. Um, <coughs> do you all know what the New Yorker cartoon caption contest is? You know the New Yorker magazine. You've probably heard of that. Um, in the very back of ooh, of each episode, they have a, a, a cartoon. You know, New Yorker. A big Thanks, part man. of the the culture of the New Yorker is they have these cartoons in there, just like one panel cartoons. And they have one at the back of each uh, issue that's blank. Like if there's a cartoon without a caption. And so you can write a caption and submit it. <clears throat> um, and each week they do this, thousands of people submit. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, uh, Roger Ebert for a long time couldn't win it, you know, the movie critic. And he'd written about like how hard it is to win. He ended up winning it twice, actually. He's one of the few people to win it twice. Um, I was the like 300 something winner. There was a blank uh, cartoon in there with two cowboys facing each other in the desert, like American Southwest desert, two cowboys, and they're on horses. But the horses are two knight chess pieces. You know, like the knight chess pieces look like horses. So there's a black chess piece and a, a white chess piece, horses, knights, in the desert with two cowboys sitting on them like they're their horses. And one guy has his mouth slightly open and the caption I wrote was, uh, I suggest you back up two paces and take one step to the side. <laughs> Get it, because that's how the knight, that's how the chess piece moves. Um, so, but you know, here's the psychology of the New Yorker uh, cartoon. I actually analyzed how could I win this. I like, I reverse engineered it. It can't be something that's going to cause a crowd like this to like outburst laughing. It was perfect. How it has you to laugh. make you feel like you know something that no one else knows. Yes. Like, yeah. So you have to laugh in your head, like <laughs> chuckle in your head. That's, and it has to be classic. It has to be timeless. It can't be something like, you can't like mention the coronavirus. You know, it has to be read in 18 years, and it still feels relevant. So. I don't. There's there are some. Uh, there are some really good ones. I think of the, the one where the clown is standing at the gates of heaven and St. Peter's looking in the book and, or is looking up at the clown and says, well, that's one birthday party the kids won't ever forget. Um, I think that that's very funny. Um, anyway, uh, but, but I, you know, that, that was a testimony to your creativity. And, um, and it, it seemed to me that the churches you served were, were fine churches, but you were never able really to spread your wings oh, yeah. in ministry. Yeah, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about, um, about coming to the Advent, your experience here, and even, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about that, and I'll do the follow-up in a minute. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, I, I have learned a lot since I've been here, and have, well, God has been at work on me a lot, and character development as a person, but also in someone who serves in formal ministry. And um, it was a good thing in coming here to be able to spread my wings creatively, uh, because actually I was asked to do some things where I could um, be creative. And I was looking to the things that I had either been taught or I mod were modeled in the church as a ways to reach people. I've always been an evangelist from the very beginning, um, but I never knew how to be an evangelist. No one took me aside and trained me uh, because most people don't know what to do. <laughs> Even the people who trained me, uh, the very people who should have. So I was sort of looking to things which are more, to be honest with you, what the church has uh, been doing, for, and I don't mean the Advent, I mean the Christian church in the Western world in the United States for years, has had an attractional model where we need to do attractive things that will gather crowds. And once we get them, well, we can get them here, you know, we can sink our hooks into them, you know? Uh, we just get butts in the pew. That's kind of the goal, you know? And then once they're here, like the magic of the place will wash over them. I really like kind of thought that that's what we needed to do. And so I did, did a lot of that stuff. Uh, you might recall when, when I first got here. Um, I remember the shoe, the shoe, um, display you help curate the largest no, tennis no, no, shoe. no 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 i followed that up oh yeah yeah we, i 
I had a. Art... Oh, no, you did the Lebanese photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. was after that. It was at a. Um, uh, we had a. I have a. It's still going on. You know, I have a traveling art exhibit that I curated. It started five years ago, and it's traveled all over the country. The last one will be in uh, Rochester, uh, New York, in 2022. It got canceled this year because of COVID. Um, but uh, I was working with a Lebanese artist and an artist here, uh, yada, 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 blah, 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 whatever. You know, we're just, we're gathering people, getting them there in a Christian environment. Um, and it, it, uh, it only worked to a certain extent. It was very interesting. I enjoyed myself. I think a lot of people enjoyed it. I think some of you enjoyed some of these things. But I can't say that I saw a lot of fruit in terms of people coming to faith or coming around. There are a few uh, who are here who kind of came around through that. So, you know, praise God. God used some of that. But I, I, um, I realized at some point that um, I had to do things d- differently. This isn't, this isn't working. Um, and... Uh, do you want to interrupt there and ask any follow-up? Yeah, yeah, because it seems to me that, that when you say that there was some point, um, as, as I have been watching you in ministry, it seems like there was a very definitive point, and it came at the hands of somebody who was visiting us. Yeah, so prior to that, okay, there, there was actually a seismic event before Philip Jensen, um, who's from Australia, came and rattled my cage. But um, God had... Um, sown the seeds in my heart for several months beforehand in that in this room standing right here i was preaching and i had a panic attack some of you were there you probably didn't know it was a panic attack melanie was probably there uh i had a panic attack after being here for a year and i was preaching and i didn't know it was a panic attack at the time but what happened was I think I felt this need for so much to run through me, through the ministers, through people like Andrew, through people like me who are on staff, that so much ministry gets bottlenecked through us, that so much depends. In that moment in that room, I looked around and I thought, if something happens here, this whole service is a five o'clock service that I was pastoring for a year at that point. If something happened to me, this service is going to stop. There isn't another ordained priest in the room, and it was a communion service. And I just, my wheels started spinning, and I had a panic attack. And this floor is terrible because it was like, like like Inception, you know, (laughs) Uh, looking at the checkerboard. And uh, finally, I went with a counselor a little bit later, and they, they were wondering if it was something biological or whatever. And the I was just stressing about it. So I went to see a counselor and the counselor said, you have anxiety and you're doing it to yourself because of your work. And in that moment, I decided I can either keep doing things this way and feeling this way, or I need to really maybe do what the Bible says, for example, in Ephesians 4, that God gave people like us to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And how can we get the people so that when I'm at the five o'clock service, I don't feel like that again, where I'm like, I'm the one guy who knows what to do. And so I started for several years reforming the five o'clock. So it was basically like, if I didn't show up, the thing could run without me. Am I right? If any of you are a part of it, by the time about a year ago now, it was to a place where like, it wasn't about Matt, you know? Uh, and if I, if I got hit by a bus beforehand, the show could go on. You might be sad, but... Um, and then Philip Jensen caught me a few months after that panic attack, and I was telling him about what I was doing and stuff. I didn't tell him about the panic attack. Tell him about the art stuff I was doing and events and whatnot, and he said, I think you're wasting your time. And I hated that he said that. I mean, who wants to hear that, you know? Um, and he said, I think you just need to read the Bible with people, pray with them, Teach them about Jesus. <laughs> and and you, like, were hey, you, you were furious. You came like, in the office yeah. the next day and you were like, I was like, what is this stupid that, Australian old he's, man? He's now? a descendant of criminals. <laughs> he, he's right. just a terrible person. <laughs> he's ruining my life. And then uh, I, I'm going to interrupt there because yeah. one of the things that I really admire about Matt is um, Matt 
Um, we've had a num not a lot of conversations where this has happened because it, it rarely comes to that. Um, but Matt and I will have a talk and Matt will say, I think I may have been wrong about this. And that shows a, a great deal of humility. And so about a week or two after Philip had uh, upset you, you, you said, I think he's right. Yeah. Yeah, so before you know, he came in town, there's this book called The Charles and Vine that Andrew was like holding up and telling everybody to read. And he gave a bunch of copies out, including to me. Um, and I, I don't know that I read it like cover to cover, but I had skimmed it. Philip didn't write it, but he's in the background of it. Two of his disciples wrote it and really describes his model of ministry. Um, and so after he left town, I, you know, he was with us for a week. So it wasn't just the like, I think you're wasting your time moment. We, I'd spent some other time with him too in a group setting. And he had some wise things to say. So I was like, well, maybe I should actually read this Charles and Vine book. And I mean, it just, it really, it highlighted exactly what I was saying. That so much of church ministry is bottlenecked through the pastors. And, uh, and that's a problem not only for us, but for you, that, that the, 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 it's a co-laboring that we need to be making disciples together. Um, and the role of the pastor is to, to, to equip the people to do that work. Um, it's pretty simple. Um, uh, but, you know, three, three years of seminary, and they didn't teach me that. <laughs> right. They were teaching me other things. Um, that you're not using anymore. That I'm not using, yeah. <laughs> so. so, but you, um, I, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you got to a point where you felt frustrated, not in, in a panic attack sort of way or in an anxious sort of way, but you got to a point where you're like, I, I think I need to do something different outside the context of an established yeah, yeah. congregation. Right. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's been several years where I've been uh, relearning, rewiring how I, I'm doing things, being humble, sitting at the feet of people like Philip Jensen and uh, some guys that he's led, um, and applying that stuff here, I think, to some good effect. Um, but still on that path, you know, um, about three years ago or so, I just had this conviction that even though we're, you know, we're, we're doing good things here at this church and a lot of other churches, I can't say that I've, I've witnessed a lot of people through our church and a lot of other evangelical churches actually coming to faith. Like unchurched people uh, coming from outside of the church, uh, coming to saving faith and being incorporated into the body. I can name a handful of people here uh, but not an awful lot. And actually, I asked several leaders, like, you know, the t in the last five years, how many people could you say that that's true of? And the average response I got was three adults, uh, which is sort of is maddening to me that really a lot of what happens in churches is we, we, we move people around from one church to the other. So our growth is through sometimes terrible things happening at other churches, but sometimes it's just a sort of boredom or their kids have left and they really were at that church because they like the youth group, but they like the choir better here at the Advent. And that's fine. A lot of those, it's a lot of you and I love a lot of you and want to spend time with you, but, but where are the people that uh, are not following Jesus and how do we reach them? And this, I can't say that I've really witnessed a lot of that in my walk and don't even really know what to do, honestly. Uh, so I asked this crazy question, what do missionaries do overseas? And is there something that they do overseas that we can apply here in North America? Because uh, I, to be honest with you, like, I don't even know what missionaries do. Like, I know they exist. We send them money. They come around and they talk about Pakistan, but they always pronounce it like Pakistan or whatever, you know, they, you know, they, they're kind of weird people, you know, and they, we sort of come around, they do a dog and pony show for a week or something, but I couldn't tell you actually what they do. So I started out and, but they're going to these places like Pakistan and <laughs> droves of people are coming. Like, this is a country where you would think like nobody is going to follow Jesus, right? Like this is like the hardest place. <laughs> and yet there are more people coming to Jesus in Pakistan than in Birmingham. <laughs> Did you know that? 
The fastest growing church in the world right now, do you know where it is? Iran. Iran. Do you know who is a real fan of Jesus and calls him the Messiah? How do you say his name? Ahmadinejad, the guy who is the president? Like, like, this guy loves Jesus. (laughs) Did you know this? What are they doing over there in places like that? And can we tap into it and apply it here in North America? Because there are a lot of people who are also of a completely different worldview. And how do we cross that divide? Um, So I just started asking missionaries, what do you do? What can I learn from you? And reading books and whatnot. And you do that for three years, and then you realize, maybe I need to be a missionary. (laughs) Like, that's maybe that's the thing I really need to be doing. Um, So I'm learning all this stuff. And then I learned some really interesting information about New England. Do you want to interject at all? No, that was my next question. Is Okay, so you felt a call, like, I I think that I need to have a more missionary role. And that role may not be on the staff at a church, and it may not be in the southern United States. But you wanted to go to a place of unreached people. Well, I thought for a while that what I was learning I needed to apply here, and I have uh, for, for the last several years. There have been some people that I've walked really closely with and equipping them, and some of them are way more fruitful than I am in terms of making disciples. Um, uh, and I think that those relationships will maintain. And actually, some of these people I think are going to flourish here in Birmingham without me here. Um, be, because uh, they're, they're going to take the onus over the types of things that I've been trying to lead them in. But um, so, so I never really was thinking we need to go elsewhere. We love it here. You know, I just, what, what can I do? There, there are a lot of, half this, over half the city of Birmingham doesn't go to church. You know, how do we reach those people? Um, but so I'm learning all this stuff, starting to apply it, how to actually share Jesus with people, see if people come to faith and disciple them. And then the study came out in uh, June of 2019 by a group called Barna. Have you ever heard of the Barna Research Group? Barna is a Christian, a nonprofit organization that does uh, religious demographic research. Uh, well trusted, especially in the the you know religious thought world. And um, they came out with a study where they ranked the most post-Christian cities in the United States. Um, Basically, think of it this way, the, the, least, the least amount of people actually following Jesus living in these places. And they put the top 10 on a map of the continental U.S., and the first eight of the top 10 were all clustered in the Northeast. Six of them in New England, two of them in New York. And then number nine and 10 were Santa Barbara, California, and Seattle, Washington. Being from the West Coast, I would have thought there would have been more balance or, or skewed over on the West Coast. So I was just really taken by this concentration. I mean, I knew things were bad in the Northeast, but I didn't realize it was that bad, you know? And I just thought, uh, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> and that sort of created this path of, um, you know, Maybe maybe we need to actually go there to do something about it. Well, tell us a little bit about the geographic significance, which you've already hit on a little bit, the geographic significance of Springfield and the historical significance right. of Springfield. So Springfield, Massachusetts is where we're moving. Um, many people, when I ask them, do you know anything about Springfield, Massachusetts, they say, no, not really. Is it, maybe that's true for you. Like, do you know anything about Springfield? Charles does, because they make rifles. He's a big gun guy. <laughs> but they used to. But there's an armory museum there. The Springfield rifles that uh, were, were made there. Uh, it was the armory of the United States. Uh, actually, uh, George Washington uh, made it so. Um, but it's a medium-sized city, 150,000 people or so. It's the largest city in western Massachusetts, 90 minutes uh, west of Boston. It was number one on that Barna list. So number one, post-Christian, therefore like least Christianized, least amount of per capita following Jesus is in the Springfield metro area. And I thought that was really neat because do you know what the first Great Awakening was? Have you heard that before? Have you heard the name Jonathan Edwards before? 
uh, in the 1720s, a man named Jonathan Edwards was the pastor of the church in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Springfield. And revival broke out under his pastorate, and that revival kind of spread throughout the colonies uh, as a part of what was called the First Great Awakening, this massive religious revival movement in the colonies and in England. Um, the, the Methodists uh, came about during this era. Uh, John and Charles Wesley you know, came to real saving faith during this era. Well, Springfield, the city that catalyzes that movement in the 1720s, is now, 300 years later, the least Christian in the United States. So not only, like, yeah, New England, we used to live there, by the way. Our oldest daughter was born in Connecticut. Um, Holly spent summers going to Martha's Vineyard. We know that region. So we had a natural attraction to the region. But Springfield, this significant history, I thought that is so fascinating, that massive reversal. So not only does somebody need to do something about that whole need in the region, but what about, you know, Springfield? What's happened there? And my wife is related to Jonathan Edwards. Um, so uh, it was like, maybe God wants to use the same family that he used before, again, uh, to, to, to do something up there. And we really want to see, uh, our, our mission is to see a new awakening in New England and beyond. Um, so we'll, we'll drive down deep as a family in Springfield, but I'm going to have a regional ministry throughout all six states where I'm just equipping people to do what our family does in Springfield and Worcester and Manchester, New Hampshire and Portland, Maine and Bangor, Maine, Providence, Rhode Island, things like that. So tell us a little bit about what your ministry will look like. So, and what it's looked like, I mean, you're already doing, yeah. you've been on staff with Big Life since midsummer, um, and, uh, but, so you're already beginning to lay the groundwork, you've been up there a little bit, but COVID's prevented you from doing too much travel, but mm. what do you, what does it look like to be Matt and Holly Schneider and the kids when you move to Springfield? So the thing I learned in my journey the last three, four years of what do missionaries actually do? Well, they, no, there's not a homogenous approach. There, there are different approaches. For example, you might be more familiar with um, things like people using opportunities like building clean water wells in Africa as a platform for sharing the gospel. Or in some places they'll do like typical church planting that looks more like church planting in the U.S., but just in, you know, um, the Philippines or something like that. But since uh, the early 1990s, there has been a, a real shift that's increasingly becoming the main paradigm in world missions. Uh, and it's called movements. And the pr key principle of movements is multiplication. So movement means a lot of people. So rather than going to plant a church now in Djibouti, Africa, or Yemen, or you know China, most missionaries don't go there with the um, and increasingly it's not white Westerners. Increasingly, it's people from nearby cultures. So our whole South Asia team with Big Life, all from India, Nepal, Bhutan, and places like that. So it's Indians working with Indians or the Nepalese. You see, because they 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 get each other and they don't go to plant a church which might reach two, 300 people in a thriving situation because, newsflash, there's like billions of people in India and most of them don't follow Jesus. So you're just not going to make any headway through planting a church with a couple hundred people. So what they're always trying to do is catalyze multiplying movements where new people come to faith and right away you give them what they need to know to share their faith to. What just happened to you? Who can you tell? Are there three people you can tell right now what you've just decided to do? And make them remain in the persecuting environment. They have to stay where they are. Some people will die. There are people on the Big Life team who have died because the only way we're going to see movement and multiplication is for people to stay in their environment rather than extracting them out, which is what we're constantly doing. I was extracted from secular American culture and brought into you know upper class, white, uh, middle upper class church culture. You know we don't want to do that. We want 
the Matt Schneiders to stay in San Francisco and talk to his atheist friends. And so, and they're, the, they're gonna come to faith and share faith too. And this happens, and often quite rapidly. Um, so uh, that's what we're gonna do in New England. <laughs> there are very few people doing this in the United States. Uh, there are a few movements happening. One is in uh, Tampa, Florida, that's the largest one. Um, uh, Western Michigan, uh, the Indianapolis area, and there's a lot of work in Texas, especially out of Houston, but elsewhere in Texas. Um, and a lot of the movement leaders have had their eyes on the Northeast, but haven't found the right leadership. And so when I started asking questions, it was like, you're an answer to our prayer, you're an answer to our prayer, and you know, perfect marriage. Um, so we're not going to plant a church, we're going to see whole communities come to faith and share their faith. And hopefully most of the people who come to faith uh, won't even know who I am. You know, Very few people will actually know who our family is. Um, because it'll be the few people that we really invest in who are then investing in others, who are investing in others in the same model. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. To me. Um, uh, but it's... Um, I've used this word before. I think it's incredibly brave of uh, you and Holly and, and the kids. And even as you're praying, um, as you were praying about all of this, tell me about uh, one of your children had been praying too. Yeah. So, you know, part of the sort of long process of discernment, of uh, deciding whether or not this is what we need to do, um, we throw in the mix, you know, Holly's parents live here, my parents live here. Um, then COVID started, you know, there's just like all this stuff that really made the decision difficult. Well, one of the things we were most worried about was telling our daughters who are walking in um, because uh, this has been home for them and they're going to have to leave friends behind. Um, and so the way that we told them is I got them to sit in front of my computer and I showed them a map of New England and told them about this Barna report and these cities and like how people don't follow Jesus there and whatnot. And I think it was Eden who said, what, what do we, someone has to do something about that. And I said, yeah, we are, we're moving there. <laughs> and they got, they were excited. Uh, you know, they, they've, they've been excited a, a, about moving. And uh, later that day or the next day, Eden uh, said to me, um, I've, I've prayed about becoming a missionary, but I didn't think it would happen when I'm a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, really, this is a family endeavor. It's not just Matt's thing. Uh, I wouldn't have done it if, if first of all, Holly weren't on board um, and, and super glad that the, the kids are too. Hmm. Holly, what are you thinking about all this? Um, I know you're on board. I uh, know you're excited. It'll, it'll almost be um, more all hands on deck than even here. Um, I think that most clergy wives here have said, that, that it's a little bit easier gig than a lot of other churches because of the lack of expectation. And, and I mean that in a good way on wives, but, but you'll be a little bit more essential personnel in a non-anxious way um, <laughs> when you get to spring. So what are you thinking about all this? I'm excited. I'm nervous. Um, it's really, I think women have more of an emotional connection to the home. So it's sad for me to leave the home where my two boys have been born and We've really grown so much in our community here, but I'm also excited because I know that God is faithful and He's never failed us in His hmm. faithfulness. And um, sometimes when you leap the with, with the least understanding of where you're going to land, is when God does the most. I'm right. most amazed by it. So I, I, Matt is the visionary, and uh, you know I, I'm with him, and I'm I'm thrilled. And uh, I think I'm I'm focusing a little bit on the immediacy and the, the children and the community we're building there, but um, yeah, this heartbroken to leave and, and elated for trusting that God will do what he mm-hmm. promises to do and that he will be with us. Amen. Well, anybody have any questions uh, for the Shinados or anything you'd like to say? I'll say something. I'll yes. Um, in 98, 96, 97, 98, up until uh, my mom died, she 
the, um, the Darien, Connecticut Episcopal Church. I went to the Darien Revival Vineyard Church, and I had some Christian friends, and I, it was a hard place <coughs> as a single person to meet people right there in that Connecticut Gold Coast area. But the main thing I heard from non-Christians was I don't go to the organized church. Right. But I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. But I was raised up. I don't know really. You know, that's just where I am. I hear it in the South, too. Oh. Many people. And so to have a ministry that is Christ-centered, that is bringing people, but not part of a building and an organized church may really reach right. that need. Because there's something intimidating are not fitting, I don't fit in different mm. churches and denominations, or I'm non-denominational. You know, I hear all kinds of things just from the walks mm. of life that I fit in. So here's That's a good point, Virginia. Thank right. you. Yeah, here's an anecdote. Um, it's not New England, but it's a very similar place. Uh, Boulder, Colorado. You know anything about Boulder? College town. Um, there's a guy uh, called named Carl Madaris. Look him up. He's really interesting. Um, he he basically did what I'm trying to do in the Northeast. He did in the Middle East, and I mean he did, he was forthright about who he was. He just uh, would go up and talk to people about Jesus, and he can no longer live there because everybody in the Arab world knows who he is. Uh, but he came back to Colorado, where he's from, and he took a guy with him out to the the pedestrian um, mall in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and they did a um, kind of a fake survey, but they had a camera and a clipboard, and they went up to random people on the street, and they went up to 100 people. 50 people asked one question, and another 50 people asked a different question to see the, if there would be a difference, at a hypothesis that there would be a difference. Um, and uh, they went up to the first 50 people and said, excuse me, we're doing this survey, and we want to know what you think about religion, and in particular, Christianity. Out of 50 people, how many do you think had a negative reaction to that question? Just take a guess. 49. A lot. 49, a lot. 75%. All 50, 100%. <laughs> what do you think about religion and Christianity? They went to the next 50 people and they said, excuse me, we're doing the survey and we're, we want to know what you think about spirituality and the person of Jesus of Nazareth in particular. Out of 50 people, how many of them do you think had a positive response? All 50. It's a, it's a subtle thing, but I think it's an important thing to pay attention to. That, um, you know, they might have the wrong, some of the wrong reasons, but most people who are outside the church are not interested in religion, uh, and particularly Christianity. But... Um, when they asked the question about spirituality and Jesus, they had people who are not churched people who cried and talking about how much they love Jesus. Mm. People love Jesus. And when they get to know him more, they love him more. So, you know, I think the best thing we can do is actually help people to know Jesus. The church, religion, Christianity, whatever, all that will follow. But if we could just introduce people to Jesus, help them to get to know him better, he will do his work. You know, I mean, if you have them read some stories from the Bible, you just tell those stories, the word of God, the spirit of God will be at work. He is the most winsome, way more winsome than you ever will be. Um, and just tell a story about like people like, um, you know, the Pharisee and the tax collector. People love that story. Because the religious guy looks like a jerk. <laughs> and Jesus makes, him look, makes the religious guy look like a jerk. They can more relate to the, the tax collector, can't they? You know, stories like that. Or the sinful woman who washes uh, Jesus' feet with her hair. Again, the Pharisees look like jerks. <laughs> the, the, the religious people. It's the woman of the street. The, a woman, you know? who's doing a really strange thing. And Jesus, you know, commends her and not them. Or the, the story of, um, uh, people love the story of Zacchaeus, you know, of not only just kids, but adults love that story. Um, the strange little man who climbs a tree and Jesus invites himself over for dinner and he says, salvation's come to this house. Um, when you tell people those stories, people, the, some of the most... Um, 
uh, some people that you think are going to be the most opposed, they'll just, they'll, at least in isolation, they'll admit that's a good story. And they got to know Jesus a little bit better and they like him a little bit better because they heard that. Yeah, more. Um, you put an article um, in the adventure of this week that was interesting. My wife brought it to me and was bugging me to read it. And, uh, <laughs> um, you had some interesting observations about Southern culture. You talked about unsaved Christians. Yeah. And I'd like you to, it's going to, we're in the box. So we're not, but you're, you're yeah. background, you're, you're an outsider, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Par- I'd, always like you, be a, I'd like you to comment on that. Yeah, always be an outsider in the South, um, no matter how long I'm here. Um, and, uh, you know, th- that has allowed a certain ability to kind of observe what's happening when many of you are in it and can't always step outside of it, I think. So in love, I say these things, which are difficult things. And I know that a lot of Southerners recognize it, too. But usually they're, they'll tell me something that uh, is like kind of afraid to offend people. Which is another thing about Southern culture is I think one of the biggest things that stands in the way of Southerners sharing faith is um, is saving face, is not wanting to offend people and make them feel uncomfortable, because relationship is huge in the South, and you know. So, uh, but one thing about the South that we've noticed, uh, Holly noticed this when she went to college. So this was gosh, going on 20 years ago. Um, uh, she grew up in Washington, D.C., but decided to go to the South, to University of Georgia, because she thought she was actually a Christian in D.C., and she thought if she went to Georgia, she'd be able to hang out with a bunch of Christians, like all her people would be there. Uh, and it didn't take her long to realize there's this phenomenon, maybe she wasn't able to kind of uh, articulate it, of cultural Christianity, where these people were... Christian, they'll say things like, bless your heart, that maybe they'll go to church or they'll get dressed up on Sunday to look like they went to church, (laughs) you know, things like this. But not everyone was a true follower of Jesus, which is what she was looking for. And so being here another time in South Carolina and Alabama, that's become abundantly clear for us and and more so over time. And I think it's uh, a really... uh, it's a real big problem. Uh, and, and I don't want to play a discerner of souls with any individual, but just categorically speaking, it's an observation we've been able to make that there, and, and the funny thing is, I don't think it's just nominal Christians like Episcopalians, or cultural Christians, like in terms of just sort of the main line, but a cultural evangelicalism that is unsaved. What was the thing you told me this morning, Carol Ann? Oh, yeah. uh, she gave me this okay. tract. Yeah, yeah. Um, this she gave it away to me. I'm a Christian now, Carol Ann. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, you're supposed to read and give it away. Right. But, Remembering Jesus by George Murray. But so why was it written? Well, it was written in response to an article that 30%, 30% of American evangelicals don't believe that Jesus is God. And so this book was written to share with fellow Christians or others just to challenge them. And the first part is Jesus is God. And the second part is why does that make a difference? Yeah, so, you know, that's just one piece of the type of evidence that, of this sort of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, I, I kind of don't entirely know what to do about it, other than to point it out yeah. and maybe hope you all will do something about yeah, it. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, Matt and I were approached um, a while back now uh, by uh, the Trellis and Vine folks, and they have a wonderful evangelism tool called Two Ways to Live, which works really well in post-Christian secular places. So they found that it was an effective um, scheme uh, of evangelism in some place like Sydney, Australia. And, uh, and I would kind of talk to them sometimes and say, well, it, it doesn't really work here because it, it starts with the presupposed notion that you don't even believe in God or that you've never heard anything about Jesus. And so it wasn't terribly uh, helpful here. And they asked Matt and I, well, would y'all write something about how to evangelize people who think that they're Christians? And uh, I I did a class, you may remember, last fall where we kind of went through a whole bunch of things. There's a good book that's written called The Unsaved Unsaved Christian. Christian 
by a guy down in Tallahassee. He's uh, a Baptist, but um, he he understands the South. And um, but as we were, um, we finally just told uh, Matthias Media, yeah, we don't know. Um, and they said, well, if you don't know, we're all in big trouble uh, because we're kind of relying on the advent. But we are continuing to to work on it, and I think in some ways it's almost a harder row. Well, I just hope. don't think they're going to read it. Is what I said. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the, the it would be target, helpful to maybe give to people that are interested in like which is, us. Which is that book already exists as right. unsafe Christian. And I said, you know, I I just I'm afraid our target audience is because they're already apathetic. <laughs> Here, read this book about the topic that you already don't care about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Holly. Well, I think there's a big. <clears throat> What I've seen is there's a big case of enmeshment between American culture and Southern Christian culture. And so people are not reading the Bible, so they don't distinguish a difference. Whereas when you're far north, there's a divide. There's a line, and you're on this side or you're on that side. Your behavior is completely different, or it is the same as the primary culture. But here, because Christianity has been so pervasive, praise God, it's it has become less clear the where there's a distinction yeah. between a Christian behavior um, or a Christian thing and cultural. So I know people who are confused about what would be biblical would not recognize a scripture being pulled back to them unless it was designated as such. Um, people who you know have an understanding of psychology or um, cultural expectation and they confuse that for what would be Christian. But Christian can be the nice thing. You know, you're a Christian if you look nice and you go and you do the right thing and you help out at the soup kitchen, rather than having any biblical understanding or any understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And so I think that's part of the challenge here is actually allowing for there to be a divide and um, for there to be something different about the Christian church and the Christian person than their peers. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that I've become more and more aware of is that we're, we're Springfield, Massachusetts before it became Springfield, Massachusetts. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that, absolutely. That, that at one point in time, New England was a lot like the American, in fact, more so uh, than the American South. And, and if you said to someone, well, you know that in 100 years, Springfield, Massachusetts is going to be completely secular people would say that's the craziest thing i've ever heard of course did you know smith college was founded as a, a missionary training school no that's the well they're they're training something but uh, <laughs> that was that was yeah. right after the war, yeah. uh, civil war so yeah. that's 150 years so ago. yeah and, and i mean uh virginia you brought up uh, st paul's darien which was really took off in the result of a revival under a wonderful godly rector named terry fulham in the 60s and 70s and do you know that that church is now closed one of the largest Episcopal church in the nation in the 1670s and 80s. And, and it's, it's, there, there's uh, George Cavour, who has preached here before, is now the rector, and the congregation is mostly made up of his family um, and, and is not a self-sufficient congregation. And it's, for all intents and purposes, closed now um, because it doesn't exist. And so there, there is a sense of you know, not resting on our laurels and just depending on the culture to evangelize our children. I think that we were kind of hoping that, that we would become Christians by osmosis. And Holly, to your point, that that, that kind of stuff, it, it's what's seeping in is not necessarily Christian uh, or not necessarily biblical, but it might be perceived as Christian, you know, sort of being non-judgmental, things like that. And I think that for the longest time and where I've seen it most definitely are kind of how we feel about cultural movements where in the past the culture agreed with the Bible, but the moment that the culture moved away from the Bible, so did a lot of other Christians. That it turned out that their convictions were rooted in culture and not in any sort of biblical foundation. Um, and so that, and that's hard for us to, to y'all's point that, that it's, you know, we don't like being uninvited to Christmas parties. Uh, we don't like, we don't like to be shunned. We don't like, but, but I think, even uh, a lot of y'all have felt this, that even if you hold biblical convictions around any number of issues, uh, you're, you're, you're evangelizing people. Um, in the American South now, that, that's not appreciated. Yeah, you're, you're, so you're taking it too seriously. Yeah, this, this sort yeah. Of lighten up, that, yeah. lighten up. Um, 
I will say that, uh, you know, when you said you, you'll always be an outsider, Matt, uh, I'm glad that in the sense that because uh, you're a believer, y'all will never be outsiders. You'll always be family. Um, but I was reminded uh, of what my grandfather would tell me um, because you did have two children uh, in, in, in Birmingham. Uh, and, um, and Zoe, were you born in South Carolina? You're born in... My grandfather would say, if a cat has kittens in the oven, we don't call them biscuits. So, um, but, uh, but we still love you. We still love you. That would be a good name yeah. for a cat. Yeah, it would be. Biscuit, yeah. All right, y'all, well, let's pray for Matt and Holly and the children. And um, gosh, we're really going to miss you, but we know that, um, that you'll be back soon enough. Oh, yeah. Well, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for giving us Matt and Holly and their family. And for their time with us, uh, Lord, uh, it's, it's just gone by so fast. And for the work that they've done in this place, uh, how you've grown them, how, you, how you've used them to grow us and to open our eyes to what you're doing around us and, and what's happening in the world. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless them uh, as they go to Springfield and that you indeed uh, would use them uh, to bring many people to know the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks. Um, <laughs> hey, if anybody's interested, we have prayer cards. Yeah, we'll get a prayer card. If you want to uh, remember us and pray for us, um, I'll just uh, leave a stack here, and you can. I'll just leave them all. You can pick one up. If you don't want it, don't take it. Thanks, Matt. Good work. Matt, I have a new goal. Well, first, I wanted to thank you for reigniting the fire of my mother. Yeah. But, you know, the saying, you know, be the, be the person that all wants. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.